You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy? Bob, how are you? I'm doing okay. Let's start from the beginning. Do you ever pinch yourself that you have a late night show, you host the Oscars, the Emmys, you're the face of ABC? I mean, do you ever say, wow, this is unbelievable. How did I get here? No, you know what I do is I, I make it all negative. I, <laughs> I, tr- I try to focus on the negative and the things that I don't want to do. But you're right. And in fact, I was, I was just thinking about this because uh, I was thinking about a dinner I had at my house with a bunch of comedians and um, yeah, some guys that I always loved. And I thought, wow, I hope I never get over that feeling of two things. Number one, I can't believe these guys are in my house. And then number two, I can't believe this is my house. <laughs> Let's just go back for a second. Was the negative thing a joke? Because don't forget no. Letterman. Letterman <laughs> is you know, uh, famous for being self-loathing and finding the uh, cloud in any silver lining. I am not self-loathing by any means. I, you know, I, I think I have relatively good self-esteem, but I don't want to do anything I have to do. Even if I enjoy doing the thing I have to do, I don't want to do it. It's a weird thing. It's like anything that's on the schedule is my enemy. Uh, my dream day is something that has no appointments on it. So, you know, I know it's not the greatest way to look at things. Uh, it's actually a very bad way to look at things, but uh, it does seem to be consistent throughout my career. Okay. So let's say you have a day with nothing on the schedule. Is that end up being great or does the day drag? Oh, the day never drags. Is there- always a million things to do. And my wife makes fun of me because we have a beach house and we'll go there on the weekends and I'll just sit at the table in the kitchen and work all day with the door open. She's like, you know, you never even, you didn't even look, you didn't go outside all day. 
He's like, I know, I just need to catch up. I just, I, that's what relaxes me, being caught up on that huge list of things to do. Do you actually have a list? Keep a list? I do. I keep a list. It's, is it uh, physical or do you keep it in an app? I keep it in, you know, the notes app. Uh, Absolutely. That's uh, why yeah, I keep I mine keep too. It, it goes to do April 2021. And then I, I don't get to most of the things and it becomes to do May 2021 and so on. Now, do you have certain things that just stay at the bottom month after month after month? Let me look at it right now and I'll tell you. Hold on, this will be interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, there are certain things that um, that do stay at the bottom that aren't urgent and they're things that I hope to get to, but like I have to make a video for a charity that doesn't have a real hard deadline, so I haven't gotten to that. There's a list that something says T-shirts. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, there's something that says fire pits with a question mark next to it. <laughs> so. Well, it's funny because at the bottom, I have this, I have to make this phone call to this rock star who I know pretty well, but I know it's going to be like two or three hours oh. and I haven't quite geared myself up for it. And now it's been like five months. And I said, well, if I cross it off, does that mean I'm not doing it or just that it's in my mind? But let's go back. Is it just a hurdle that once something's on the schedule and you start, you forget it, you know, your anxiety or your not wanting to do it disappears? Or do you have to kind of get revved up and get into it? Um, no, I'm, I'm okay once I get it. You know, I have so many things to do that it's just like I'm like a, I'm like a hooker in some ways. It's like, all right, let's here we go. All right, let's just do this. And there are a lot of meetings. The meetings are the things, the thing that I, I don't necessarily care for, but most of it's fine. Most of it is me doing what I call homework, just editing scripts and going through hundreds of ideas and figuring things out and yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. Let's separate. There are meetings that are business and meetings for the show. What percentage of them are meetings for the show and what percentage are meetings for external stuff? 80% for the show, 20% for external stuff. Okay. So during COVID, were those meetings done via Zoom or conference call or what? They're mostly still being done via Zoom. I don't know if you know this, Bob, but COVID is not over yet. I know that um, Steve Cropper thinks it is, but. <laughs> well, I will tell you, it's a very strange thing if we get into this, because I'm taking it very seriously. I know, I mean, you probably do too. Those of us who know a lot of different people, I know a lot of people who've died. Yeah. And it's definitely possible. And in my particular case, I take the one drug that if you take it, the vaccine doesn't work. Oh, So boy. I have been vaccinated months ago. And they now have a test that can literally show how many antibodies you have. And the threshold on the test is one. Most people have over 20. I have 0.1. So wow. I won't go down my whole avenue, but I will say I'm taking it unbelievably seriously. Other than yeah. doctors, I'm not seeing anybody. I'm going hiking the mountains. Otherwise, I'm home. I'd close up your nose holes if I was you. I mean, just to be <laughs> safe. That's uh, boy, that's scary. I'm sorry you're going through that. That is, but I will tell you, I was just at it. I just did a shoot this morning at a gymnastics place and I'm trying to learn to do a cartwheel. And um, I could never the, do that. One of the people, neither can I, by the way, none of one of the people that works there, you know, we were putting on a mask and somebody's like, yeah, her husband uh, passed away from COVID. And it's like, oh my God, you know, it's, you, 
it's easy to forget that the, you know, these numbers that you see uh, on CNN that they're people and that people lose their loved ones to this and that it's not just an inconvenience, which I think is what it is for probably most people, just an inconvenience. That's more than an inconvenience. Well, there's so many things there. I mean, what people don't realize is someday they're going to die, even like Sumner Redstone. Or yep. as Jerry Seinfeld says, we're here to be replaced. Right. And what they, when you die, I don't care who you are, life goes on. So you think what you're doing is so important. It's really a strange thing. But when you have these meetings, do you run the meeting? Um, not usually, no. Who runs the meeting? The meeting is usually focused on me. So it depends on what department I'm talking to. They're usually pitching me stuff or trying to get my take on something. Usually, I don't run the meeting, no. Okay, but in the meeting, mm-hmm. it demands your attention the whole time. Yeah. So, you're not doodling, you're not, you know, surfing the web while you're doing this, whatever. I am doodling, but uh, but my <laughs> different part of my brain is paying attention. Okay, can one say that you're moving so fast and there's so much in the landscape that really you don't have time to think about it? And what it means? Yeah, there are a lot of things I don't have time. There are things I, I wish I'd had more time to think through. But, you know, the worst part of this job is being asked a million questions and knowing, unless you're a lunatic, knowing that, you know, a certain percentage of your answers have to be wrong. They're, they can't all be right. So you get asked like 200 questions in a day, and that doesn't even count picking between jokes or bits or whatever it is. And um, a certain percentage of them are not going to be right. And it's, you know, that's just something that you have to accept. You know, I go to a therapist for that because it's very hard. He says, just make a decision whether Mm. it's right or wrong. It's, you know, it's what you've already achieved that you know that a certain number will inherently be wrong. But But I will tell you, Bob, I'll tell you a weird thing. I can make a million decisions when it comes to work or, you know, comedy or material, whatever. But when it comes to trying to figure out what to do for vacation, I am, I mean, and my wife is this way too. We cannot ever make a decision. It becomes like we almost always make the decision at the last minute when we're absolutely forced to, but because we just can't, it's just too, it's overwhelming and it's a weird thing. And we have talked about it. Like, why is this? Why can't we figure this out? Why is this so difficult? And I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Generally speaking, are you the kind of guy who doesn't plan ahead? I No, I very much plan ahead. Very much so. So it's only in this one area that you're uh, stifled, so to speak. Yeah. And so how many weeks a year the- are you off from the show? I am off now. I have a new arrangement with ABC where I take the summers off. I am off uh, from, which is really just July and August. So I'm off July and August. And then we have, I think, um, six weeks spread but throughout the rest of the year. Okay. You know, famously, Johnny went to four days, but Letterman had five shows a week, even though he did two on one day. To take the summer off, you must have been pretty confident in your status to even ask for it. Yeah, actually, I didn't even ask for it. I was thinking maybe that maybe I've had enough. I, I don't know if I can continue going at this pace. And either my agent or ABC or some combination of the two said, 
well, what if you had the summer off? And I said, well, that would be great. That I think I could, that I think could keep me going for a little while. Okay. So you have a summer off, you have young children. What's the general plan now? Summer's coming. <laughs> well, you know, that's hard for me, Bob. I, I can't figure it out. Well, let's start from the beginning. Your yeah. house is in the South Bay, right? Your beach house? Yes. Okay. That's a big thing in LA because most mm. people are North. They're right. in Malibu, whatever. How did you decide to be South? I have had, I have a very small house. Our house is 1100 square feet and I have had it since I've had it for 16 years, I think. And I love it down there. I like people on the beach. I don't like Malibu. I don't like, uh, I just don't like the way it goes. You know, I, I, I like to see umbrellas and children and families and groups of people on the beach. I enjoy it. Nobody bothers me down there. People are very nice. And it's just, it just relaxes me. When I, I come over the, there's a little hill that I go down to go down to the beach. When I, I go over that hill on Friday, I feel a sense of relief. And it's like, oh, this is the weekend. It's happening. And do you have any buddies who have houses down there? Um, almost my whole family lives down there. My parents, my in-laws, my cousins. Uh, so we have, yeah, a lot of friends down there. Okay. Let's square switch gears completely. Uh, the, the reason we're doing this podcast, not that is we had a series of emails about the whole late night world. And you were telling me that primarily, or a big factor is creating stuff to post online. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Amplify that. Well, I don't know if I, I put it that way. I just. You were talking, you know, I think you um, you are a harbinger of death when it comes to um, all of our the businesses that we've loved <laughs> throughout the, the years, throughout our childhood. And, um, you know, for the most part, you're right. But I do think that what people miss and people are so focused on like Nielsen ratings when it comes to and I'm not talking about primetime television. I'm talking about late night television. If you were to look at the Nielsen ratings, you'd say, wow, things have really gone downhill. But if you look at the reality of late night television, it's that people are watching it on YouTube. People are millions of people every night are watching my monologue and Colbert's monologue and Fallon's and Seth Meyers and James Corden. We've actually um, offered our product up for free to YouTube and we get almost nothing in return. And now people don't have to watch our show anymore because they know they get it there. Well, one thing we did discuss, you weren't sure the answer to this, is to what degree it is monetized on YouTube. Um, well, it is monetized. But the I mean, you're talking about compared to television right, revenue, you're you're talking about probably 10 percent of our revenue comes from YouTube. Okay. So what is the goal? Is the goal? You say a lot of people they're watching. They never watch uh, you on regular television when you're on for an hour. Uh, so it's not revenue. Is it to keep your name in the game? Is it for personal satisfaction? What is it all about? Well, it just kind of happened. Is the truth? It was. Um, we started. The reason we even started a YouTube channel was because we made this video called "I'm Fucking Matt Damon," and. Everyone was posting it and it was getting millions of views on 
uh, a lot of people's pages and it had nothing to do with revenue. I just didn't like the way some people were posting it. Some of them were cutting out the interest. I mean, it was like messy. I didn't like how it was being presented. So I said, we should, we should start our own YouTube channel so we can post these videos in the way we want them to be posted. And then viral videos from late night television shows. Just, just for those people thing. who are, just for those people who may not be, you know, your biggest fan. What year are we talking about? Um, we are talking about, let's see, when was that video? Maybe. Okay. I can figure it out because it was made for my 40th birthday, but then there was a writer's strike. So we had to hold it. I think it was 2008 beginning. So of this was really early YouTube before all the influencer craziness, never mind Instagram, et cetera. Yes, it was very early. I am. I'm certain we were the first show late night show to have a, a YouTube channel. Okay. Continue. So then we started posting our videos there just because. You know, you want people as many people to see your stuff as possible. It seemed like a way uh, to catalog your show and your best bits, and then people could go and look at something you're particularly proud of. We none of us realized that it would go completely upside down, and most people will be watching on YouTube. You know, and that's what has happened. But you can't really put it back in the box. You know, it's it's you, you can't just get off YouTube. It's not, because you'd have to coordinate with all of the shows to get off YouTube. And then you'd have pirates putting the stuff up anyway. And it usually takes 24 hours to get it taken down. So it would just be, you'd wind up just like chasing your dog around in circles. What did ABC say about this? They, you know, they felt the same way. They were like, yeah, fine. You know, uh, let's, we'll put it on you. We'll go on YouTube. Okay. Because some of these channels, they insist it's on their own domain page and they kill it on YouTube, et cetera. You got no static or you were so early that the paradigm was set before they realized what was happening. Yeah. And we were all in the same boat. None of us saw this as the basic, the outlet from, I mean, we're, we're all, we're all doing shows for YouTube and being paid by someone else to do them which is a great spot to be in if you're youtube okay but let's talk about jimmy kimmel so now you're creating a show every night to what degree in the back of your mind are you thinking does this work on youtube very little i i always try to remember what i'm doing what i was doing at the beginning um i have an idea of what is going to work but i do not program the show for youtube do you watch the YouTube numbers? Yes, we do look at the YouTube numbers. You particularly, you watch them? I look at it every week. I get a report on uh, on it every week. And then every once in a while, there's something, if I'm particularly interested to see how it's doing, how it's playing, I will look. Okay. Now, you must know what works and doesn't work on YouTube, right? I have a pretty good idea, yeah. So what works generally and what doesn't work? The monologue is works best of all. Um, the um, uh, certain comedy bits, when you really put your foot into them, those will play very well. Mean tweets. Um, there are certain bits that we do regularly that do well because people know to look for them. What doesn't do well is music, weirdly. Um, of course, we have. It's difficult because there are licensing agreements that prevent us from posting many of the uh, performances that we have. So I, it actually surprises me a little bit because I would think that music would be more popular on, on YouTube than it is. 
Uh, just going back, what is the lifespan? Obviously, these things live on YouTube essentially forever. But if you do something, do people then watch within 24 hours or is it a week? What, you know, what's the, when do the greatest number of people watch a clip? Definitely the first 24 hours. Um, it will extend to a few days usually. But then what happens, which is interesting, is you build this catalog of material and people will, will come back to that material and um, it, bits that you did 10 years ago and watch that stuff. And it gives you a kind of a huge viewer base. Okay, do you have any idea, because the monologues are in the neighborhood of 10 minutes, do you have any idea what percentage of people who start stay for the whole monologue? Um, I don't know. I did know at one time, the monologues are usually around 14 minutes, 14, 15 minutes. Um, I know that they do well when they're long. Uh, people, I think most people tend to watch the whole thing. Okay, now your monologue is a little bit... Now, let's start from the beginning. You were not a stand-up comic before. Maybe we'll get to that later. But Johnny used to do his monologue, and it was almost like it was clear he didn't write the jokes, and he'd be laughing at the jokes, okay? And then Letterman made a whole thing of, you know, the joke doesn't have to be good, etc. But you have changed the monologue, and you'll have footage and all kinds of things within the monologue. It's just, I mean, even Bill Maher on HBO, he does his five to ten minutes, then we go into the show. Whose idea was to change it up like that? Um, It wasn't really anyone's idea. It just happened. It's just, I wish I could say there was some master plan, but... It, when I started the show, first of all, Regis called me and he gave me, I said, give me some advice, Regis. And he said, well, well, uh, well start for the, how do you know Regis? I, I, you know, Regis and I gravitated to each other somehow. Um, I'd done it. I'd done Regis when I was uh, hosting the man show and oh, Regis. I know how I know Regis because he liked, I was on Fox NFL Sunday. I was a uh, prognosticator and Regis is a big football fan and he liked me from that. And I was actually a contestant on who wants to be a millionaire long before I had the talk show at ABC when Regis was the host and um, Regis and I have a little chemistry somehow. He got a kick out of me and I out of him. So Regis called me and he, um, he gave me the advice to make the monologue my own. He said, the rest of the show is about other people. It's about the guests. It's about the music and whatever you have going on. But the monologue, that is your time. That's, that should be, that's yours. And don't forget that. Don't turn it over to others. Um, do the monologue. Be the guy who does the monologue. And I was like, okay, uh, thanks. <laughs> but my plan when I started was I had nothing written. I had no jokes written the first year and a half of the show i would go in i'd sit there i didn't even stand up and i'd bullshit my way through the the monologue like it was a radio show and as like as i i became more discriminating i started evaluating the show a bit more closely i got over the like oh my god we're just lucky we got this show on the air tonight phase of the uh, of the job i started writing more and I started uh, refining well and planning and doing and shooting uh, bits with real content. And um, uh, these are things that I don't know why I wasn't doing them. I look back on those early shows and I go, 
I thought I was pretty smart. I guess I wasn't. I had no idea what I was doing. It was a big mess. Everything was a mess. <laughs> it was just a fucking disaster. It's a miracle that we made it to the second year. Okay, so is your show the type where you're open to anything? Someone comes in with a wild idea. Do you tend to say yes, or are you the kind of guy who says no? Um, I don't know how to answer that. I know what works for our show, and I know what doesn't. And I know I've learned over the years that there's always this idea when you start a talk show that I'm going to mix it. Up. I'm not going to do it the way everybody else did it. I'm going to it's I'm going to revolutionize this. And and what you wind up doing is something that's not a, a late night talk show. You wind up doing something else. And maybe what you're doing is good, but it's not, you know, it's like being a baseball player in a lot of ways. You still have to have. Um, you know, 90 feet between the bases and uh, 60 feet, six inches to the pitcher's mound. And yeah, maybe there's going to be a little bit of variable when it comes to where the outfield fence is or the shape of the field itself. But ultimately, you have to you have to work within a box or else you're not doing a late night talk show in the same way these morning television shows, you know, the Today Show. Um, you know, uh, Good Morning America, they're kind of doing the same thing, but with different people. And that is you learn what the viewer wants to see at that time. That's what they want to see. We've done these big shows where we've had these like we had Quentin Tarantino direct our show once. We had, um, you know, all these different uh, we've done these unusual bits where like I'd get on a bus and do the show from the bus for the whole night and you know all these crazy stuff that took a huge amount of work and it always rates badly it's weird it's like people just want to see the show like all right you with your whatever the fuck you're doing I don't know but people want to see you do a monologue and then go sit down at the desk and then throw it to either a comedian or a band okay you have a young family. You're doing a five night a week show. To what degree? How do you keep up? I mean, how much time do you have to surf the web just to get a feel for it on these varying sites? To what degree do you have to immerse yourself in the world of the people who are the guests, whether watch a movie, read a book, whatever? How do you manage all that? It's a lot. I, you know, my schedule is basically I go to the work, go to work in the morning. I come home. I get home at about six o'clock. The next two hours are for the kids. And then the next four hours are for homework. So I put the kids to bed and then I'll go through all my emails and all the stuff I couldn't get to while I was planning the show. I um, will, if I have a movie I need to watch or a TV show I need to watch, I'll do that. And then um, it all starts over again the next day. So there's not a, there's not a lot of time for, um, me to do anything other than work on the next day's show. Do you ever just fly blind, say, man, I've been studying too much. I do this so well. I can have anybody as a guest. I don't really have to prepare. No, never. Really? I never do that. Yeah, never. But let's assume it was a test like the Tarantino show. Could you do it? I could do it. And some of them would be good. Some of them might even be better than the way I do it now. But some of them would be very bad and I go for consistency and I don't want to get lazy. And I think when you start getting lazy, that's when you should stop doing the show. I still want the monologue every night. I want it to be as good as it possibly can be 
given our time constraints and um, the constraints of, of the world. But every night I work on it as hard as I can until the moment I have to step on the stage and then I do it. And there's times like, I'm very good at reading a teleprompter. I can, you could wake me up in the middle of the night and I could read a teleprompter very well. But every night, even though I don't enjoy it, it's probably my least favorite part of the day. I go through, I read through my script and I commit it to as much to memory as I possibly can because I know that it's going to make it 3% better if I do. And that 3% makes a huge difference. That's what people don't realize. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, you grow up in New York. 
until like you're nine or 10. What's that about? What's that like? Um, Brooklyn, typical lower middle class upbringing, Mill Basin down at the bottom of Brooklyn, um, an Italian Jewish neighborhood running around with kids, Mets fan, um, flipping baseball cards, playing stickball in the street. And um, I moved when I was in fourth grade. Uh, that's when my family decided to okay, move. Okay, okay. You're yeah. in New York, okay? Uh-huh. You're going to school. You're a good athlete? Um, I'd say intermediate. I'd say, I wouldn't say I was a good athlete, but okay, not bad. And But you played a lot. You were always yes. game to be in the game. Yes. How good a student were you? Very good student. Excellent. Very good student. Did everybody else, did you go to public school or Catholic school? Public school. Okay. Did everybody realize that you were doing that well? Yes. I was, I, I know it sounds like a jerk, but I was always the smartest kid in my class. Okay. Always. So you were the smartest kid in your class. Did people resent that? No. I was also the funniest kid in my class. Okay. Would you also say you were the most popular kid in your class? No. <laughs> well, Yes. Um, in the way that I didn't want to be not, not with girls for sure. And not nobody was, no, wait, let's start with New York. You leave yeah. when you're in fourth grade. So girls aren't that big an issue. No, they were a big issue. Yeah. No, I mean, they weren't an issue, but yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I was interested in girls from kindergarten on. Okay. Wait, how many kids in your family? We don't know. No, there's three kids in my family. And where I'm are you oldest. in the hierarchy? You're the oldest. So all the hopes and dreams are you. What kind of personality does your have? Did your father have at the time? My father is the kind of guy that will tell you about his knee operation for four hours straight. <laughs> what if you try to interrupt him? He'll he'll get back on. You can't get him off track. <laughs> it's impossible. Okay. Does he tell a good story? No. <laughs> <laughs> Your mother, verbal, nonverbal. My mother was class wit in her giant high school in Brooklyn, Madison, and um, very verbal. Literally never stops talking. Okay, so how did it work between your mother and father? He's telling a long story. She's the witch. She's talking. Who can get a word in edgewise? Well, he, my dad operates. They just talk simultaneously, and I'm not joking at all. Like, you can be sitting in between them, and they're both talking to you, and you look to them with a, you know, a look of bemusement at first and going like, you can both see that you're both talking to me. And I know I have two ears, but I only have one brain and I can't process both of this stuff. But my dad talks at a very, my dad's like, it goes like this. Like, so your mother, uh, we made a car rental. Uh, we're going to Avis and that was a thousand dollars. So then I looked, I got my discount from American Express. And then my mother is at full volume talking about something else. So it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's harmony. It isn't. It's a cacophony for sure, but they managed to just talk at the same time constantly. Okay. And how did you deal with this? Did, were you quiet or did you jump in too? I was pretty quiet. I picked my spots and I really think that's what attracted me to radio is just being, just never really being heard in the house. Okay. And usually, okay. How far apart are the other two kids in the family from you? My sister's three years younger. My brother is nine years younger. Oh, nine years younger. It's like a whole nother generation. For sure. Okay. What'd your sister think about all this? About what? About my about parents? About the cacophony and there's no room for anybody. And now she comes along. You know, I have to tell you, um, well, first of all, 
<laughs> just to give you an idea of what it was like in my house, um, my sister's birth announcement, my wife discovered this as my mother was showing her my baby book. My sister's birth announcement said, and I quote, Jimmy has a sister. <laughs> <laughs> and is that the way it really played in the family? Yeah, it kind of did. Yeah, yeah. My- <laughs> My sister was my father's favorite, and um, my bro- I think yeah, my, I think it, it was sort of you know mom with the sons and dad with the daughter. Okay, now somebody who's like the class wit usually gets sent to the office. There's trouble. The parents are called in. Not every day, mm-hmm. but you don't go unscathed. Did that happen with you? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't so. It was you know what. You put yourself in a position when you decide to be the, I was the more the class clown than the class wit probably. But when you put yourself in that position, you have to be prepared for shrapnel. You're going to get it. I mean, because every once in a while, the teacher's going to get really mad. My favorite teachers were the ones that, that laughed along with the rest of the class. And I had a couple of great ones uh, who, you know, who really, you know, in the way that's your first audience, right? So, I had these teachers that got a kick out of me and I think part of it was because I was such a good student. So they didn't hold it against me. But then every once in a while, I have a teacher that would just lose their minds. Okay. Your parents would be called in since your mother's such a wit. What would she say about your behavior? I don't think, you know, I went to always really big public schools. So there wasn't a whole lot of parents being called in. Most of the punishment was meted out it within the confines of the school. Like I'd have to go sit in the hall and um, which was a weird punishment. It was like, I'd rather be in the hall. I don't know what kind of punishment this is, but um, uh, it was um, uh, my parents didn't get called to school a lot. I was always nervous. They were going to find out what I was up to. Um, but only when I was an adult that I realized my mother was probably up to the same stuff. Okay. And your father and mother were both of them working in brooklyn or just your father just my father and what was he doing at the time he worked for my dad didn't get his high school diploma he he went and got his ged okay couple, then, wait, wait 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 before you go there yeah your father how many generations in america my father many generations in america okay many. so it wasn't like he was an immigrant dropping out of high school what his parents think about him dropping out of high school You know what? They didn't know. I think, um, I think my, you know, my grandfather, uh, on my dad's side was an elevator operator for his whole life. That's what he did. So the idea that you would, you would be expected to achieve something that wasn't something we didn't have that in my family. You know, my grandfather on my mom's side, who is still like the funniest person I've ever met in my life was an upholsterer and a film splicer for his whole life. And both of my grandmothers were you know, moms. They didn't, they were at home and, and they cooked and did all that stuff. But there wasn't, I, I mean, my dad was, first of all, the, definitely my dad got his GED and then went to like night school to get his college degree. He was, Oh, so he ended up getting his college degree. Yeah. He got his college degree. Yes. And um, there aren't many college degrees in our family. Okay. How about your two siblings? Uh, my, uh, neither one, none of us, none of us have a college degree. Okay. How'd your parents meet? They met at a bowling alley in Brooklyn. 
was it instant attraction or what's the legend? I think so. I think it was. And they got married very young. My my mom was 20 when they got married. My dad was 22. And when did you come? I came when my mom was 21. I came um, uh, a little over a year after they were married. Okay. So your parents come and confront you one day, say, we're moving to Las Vegas. Yeah. When you're a young kid, that's like the worst thing that could ever happen. You're leaving all your friends, et cetera. What'd Not really. Not really. Because my grandparents lived there and my cousins lived there. They moved two years ahead of us. So, you, you know, we're, it's a very tight Italian family. We were, we were excited. I was, you know, and also when I was nine years old, you don't know what's going on. It's like, oh, all right, we're moving to Las Vegas, <laughs> you know, so we'll live there. And I had some good friends in Brooklyn, but we were kids, you know, kids move on to other kids. Did you stay in touch with them? You ever seen them since? I do. Actually, I, there's a, my best friend as a kid, as a kid named Paul Kaplan. He's not a kid anymore. He's an adult man. He was the craziest kid in the class. I was always attracted to the craziest kid in the class. He, he really was a nut, this kid. And he still is a nut. In fact, he was one of the um, bleacher creatures at the Yankees games. You know, those guys. And, yes. was Paul, and it makes perfect sense. And of course, he's the guy. It's Paul Kaplan. And I know you won't mind me telling this story. Got hit by lightning in his living room. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Tell this story. <laughs> you can actually look it up and find it in the news. Paul was sitting on his couch in Staten Island watching a Yankees game. And an errant bolt of lightning came down his chimney and burnt his couch and his hair and his TV and him and everything. <laughs> and were there after effects or like, is he okay? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because it seemed like he'd been hit by a bolt of lightning before he was hit by a bolt of lightning. Okay. You moved to Vegas. What does your father do in Vegas? My dad, we moved there with no job. So my dad was working at Equitable and IBM uh, in New York. He was a com like a computer programmer when computers were the size of a house. And we moved to Vegas and um, we, my dad got a job at a company called Summa Corporation, which was owned by Howard Hughes, who was not alive at the time, but they owned seven hotels in Las Vegas. And my dad got a job in management information services, which I still don't know exactly what that is. But uh, I do know that one of the things that he was involved in was setting the odds on the slot machines. So wow, they would cool. just the slot machines, whatever the payout is. He was involved in that. So what was his viewpoint on gambling and what was the mantra in the house? The gambling was not encouraged. And in fact, my dad made a big impression on me. One of the few big impressions that he made advice wise, we were walking through one of the casinos and he goes, you see this beautiful hotel? I said, yeah. He goes, you think they built this from people winning? And I went, oh, no, I guess not. <laughs> I have a friend who says Las Vegas, a monument to losers. If people really were losing, the whole town wouldn't exist. Okay. <laughs> Needless to say, the weather's a little bit different in Vegas than it is in Brooklyn. Yeah. To what degree do you adjust depressed? And so, I mean, it is really hot there in the summer. To what degree? 109. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it's cold in the winter too in Vegas. It can get pretty cold. In fact, it snowed the first year we moved to Vegas. Um, but, you know, I was a kid. It did whatever, the, you know, whether it's scorching hot or freezing cold, you're out in the street playing. Okay, so in the summer, even though it was 100 degrees, you were out making mischief. 
Very much so. And in fact, my partner in that mischief is a guy named Cleto Escobedo. He was my, he lived right across the street from me and we became best friends almost immediately. And he is my band leader on my show. Wow. Amazing connection. You're a very loyal guy. So you're going to school. You go to public school in Vegas? Yes. And are, is it the repetition of the same thing? You're the best student and the funny, the class clown? Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, when I moved to Vegas, I was way ahead of the other. The kids in Brooklyn were, as far as public school goes, were quite a bit ahead of the students in, in Las Vegas at that time. So I was like a year and a half ahead as far as what we're learning goes. Okay. You say you've always been interested in girls. So how does that start playing out? Um. Uh, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't play out. I would be quietly interested in them. Terribly shy. Um, never would. I, I mean, I once at, in the sixth grade, I asked a girl named Lynn Engelstad to the dance and it took every bit of courage I had to ask her. And she immediately said yes. And she, as I recall, she was a beautiful girl. And I, I just, I, I was so taken by her and i couldn't believe she said yes and then went on the day of the dance which was like an after school thing i was too i was so embarrassed i hid from her the whole time okay i understand that what happened in the next four years in high school nothing <laughs> i but was you a got, band. You, you got married at a very young age i know that's because i thought i'd never have a girlfriend i was like i better get married to this one <laughs> and why did that marriage end um she hated me <laughs> yeah we didn't get along i think was the problem and so you have your first kid at what age 24 that's a lot of responsibility she turns 30 in august what's she up to she's an artist she lives in the mojave desert she makes ceramics and she's doing very well wow and your other kid for that marriage uh, is my son he is 27 he is he works on my show he makes funny videos with his friends and he's interested in doing the type of nonsense that i do how do the those both of those kids get along with molly and the younger kids oh great they get they get along great in fact uh it was our son's uh fourth birthday uh yesterday and oh no the day before yesterday and um it was my yeah. birthday yesterday so for a minute there i thought oh wait a minute what's your birth date April 22nd. Okay, this is the 21st. We came, you know what? We were happy that he came on the 21st because you know what April 20th is. Of not course. Just, not just donor day, but Hitler's birthday. <laughs> and you don't want that. But uh, just in case there is something to astrology, you don't want your kid born on Hitler's birthday. But they get along great. I mean, they, I mean, they all love each other. And to what degree do you have contact with your first wife? Uh, not a ton. We, you know, our kids are getting married. Our older kids are scheduled to get married this year and next year. So that has brought us together a bit and we get along now. Fine. It's just when we're living in the same house, it was tar hard. And is, did she get remarried? No, she, but she has a long-term, uh, partner. And is she on the payroll? <laughs> you mean as far as uh, alimony goes? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, she so, is. Yeah, she doesn't want to get married. Okay. <laughs> when someone looks at your You're career. You're reading my mind, Bob. <laughs> when someone looks at your career. Yeah. Those of us who are in LA know this shit doesn't happen by accident. 
People are not successful by accident. So it's a personality. I mean, my interactions with you have been significant yet limited. You're very open. You're very warm. You know, same type of thing like me and the girls. Oh, come, come down to the show. Come hang out. It's like, you know, it's all. It was overwhelming. I couldn't go. But <laughs> uh, is you know, what kind of guy are you? Are you just a guy's guy and you know everybody and therefore opportunities come along? Um, no. I am a very hard worker. Uh, I am. I always have been. Always. I mean, since I was when I was when I was in high school, I worked seventy hours a week. In addition to going to high school, I worked at a pizza place and I worked at a clothing store. And I just, I don't know. I, I think maybe it's anxiety or something. But I, I was always worried about money. When I was in radio, I was, you know really just barely making it for a long period of time, 10 years of really just kind of like going to the ATM and hoping that I will have more than $20 so I can withdraw $20 to have lunch type of deal. And so that has always been with me. And that is, you know, that makes it hard to turn things down, uh, but you have to, you know, but definitely it, it, it when you go the first like 30 something years of your life and then career not having any money at all it's um it really can like your prior you know this the things that you you have to explain to your younger self are sometimes difficult i mean it's you know they're like wait i'm going to say no to this I, it'll take me an hour i can make this much money and you know it's a constant struggle Okay, but let's talk about musicians. Okay. Not the guy whose name is on, you know, not Elton John, not Rod Stewart, not Drake, but the people who work with them, who are actually players. Irrelevant of their personalities, they are unbelievable networkers. Mm -hmm. They maintain relationships with a lot of people because it's all gig work. And they know at some point they're going to work a relationship, they're going to give a relationship. Was that at your experience in L.A.? No, not at all. I didn't know anybody and I never intended to do anything other than be a radio disc jockey. I did not think I would be good at 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 and being an actor. I'm still not an actor. I, I'm very aware of that. I did. I just wanted to make money. I, you know, I was on the radio and people thought I was funny and they would call me and say, hey, do you want to write for this or would you like to audition for this? And I'd be like, okay. And then, you know, most of them went nowhere, but occasionally I would happen upon something that was, um, that worked out. And I had a weird, you know who Fred Silverman is, right? Of course. So Fred Silverman, for those who don't know, is the only person who ran ABC, NBC, and CBS. And this is when. Not simultaneously. Not but simultaneously, <laughs> but this is when everyone was watching. This is, you know, the seventies and eighties and a, a titan of the television industry but now he's an old guy and he's mostly retired but he's got a production company that keeps him busy and i get a job writing for a game show so i'd go do my radio show and then afterwards i spent a few hours writing questions and jokes for this game show they were putting together and have any idea do you remember what you were getting paid um probably four hundred dollars a week something like okay. that which was great for me. I mean, which I was excited about. So, and I meet this guy named Alan Rucker, who's a great guy and who wrote um, 
the history of white people in America with Martin Mull. And I enjoy hanging around with him. So I stay a little longer than I'd been planning to. And I start now hosting the run-throughs. Uh, they do run-throughs to work out a game show and work out most every show. Well, well, wait, um, wait, wait, a little bit slower. You're start. writing for the game show. Yeah. How many writers are there? Just me and Alan. Okay. Who was doing the run-through before you? No one. There was no show before we worked it out. Okay. Did you say, hey, I'll be the guy doing the run-through? Or did no. someone say, hey, you know, just have him do it? It wasn't either of those things. It was a, we were writing the material, and and then somebody had to read it aloud, and so that became me. So I would do this, and we'd try to figure out, oh, this show, and the show was terrible. It was not working at all. It made no sense. So, <laughs> but they were paying us, and I thought, ah, I liked Alan, and so I was like, whatever. So I would host the run-through. And then they were going to they were going to find a host for the show. And uh, in fact, they were interested in getting uh, Kevin and Bean, the guys I, I work for at K-Rock to audition. They wanted them to audition separately and they were going to bring in all these hosts that people know well. Well, Fred Silverman comes in to see the final run through and he's I mean, he's great looking. He looks like an old TV executive. He's got a glass of iced tea in his hand and all that gets refilled at all times. And, uh, you know, big belly and he's, he's dressed immaculately and he sits down and we do the run through. And Fred says, and I swear to God, this happened. Fred goes, cancel the host auditions. This kid is the host. He didn't even know what my name was. <laughs> and, wow and i was like what <laughs> he's like yeah um and um it was i was like wait, wait okay. just wait 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 just to stop yeah were you doing shtick as the host i mean yeah i was fucking around yeah okay right. and but not with the intention of being the host of you course, know it didn't even cross my mind and in fact i knew this show was not getting on so it wouldn't it didn't even matter but what happened was we presented this show to a lot of buyers we had a um, you know, we had a presentation where all these different buyers from these different networks came in and uh, many of them liked me. They didn't they had no interest in the show. But one in particular was Michael Davies, who went on to produce Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and who produced a show called Win Ben Stein's Money, which was my first show. And he called me afterwards. He's like, I thought you were really funny and I'd love to have you come audition for this show, Win Ben Stein's Money. We we were planning to do it with Ben Stein solo, but we feel like we need a sidekick. And I said, well, that sounds funny. That sounds like a good idea. The game show host plays against the contestants. And so I went in and it was great, right? I mean, it really worked immediately. Ben loved me. I loved him. And I, that was it. I was, then I was the host of a show that won Comedy Central its first Emmy, I think, and was on every night, twice a night. Um, but you know, we were on, uh, just before the daily show, um, every night. And, um, that's really how it started for me. Okay. How much money were you making at K rock? K rock. I was making, uh, when I started, I was making $50,000 a year. When I left, I was making like 120. And how many years were you there? I was there for five years. Okay. How'd you get that gig? I got that gig in a weird way guy named Kevin Weatherly, who's a great program director, um, was uh, everyone at K-Rock was from Phoenix, Arizona. And that's where I went to college. And that's where um, my parents lived for a long time. So 
I I would call into this radio station KZZP. You know that station? Actually, I don't. Huge in the eighties. I think they had the biggest market share of almost any radio station in the country. A huge CHR station, very very popular. And I would call into the afternoon guys, Mike Elliott and Kent Voss. And they took a liking to me. And then I got to know this guy who was the what music What was your director. goal in calling? Uh, I just like being on the radio. I was, you know, excited to be on the radio. And, you know, I'd call in. They'd tape a bit with me. I'd do a character or something like that. And and then I'd listen Okay, well, you're going, to, you're going to the University of Arizona. Are you studying radio and television? First of all, how dare you? Arizona State University. Wh- whichever. Uh, you know, I'm not Arizona. <laughs> obviously, I'm not Arizona fluent based on I didn't know the station. No, I went. No, I was not studying uh, that. I was studying English. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. you didn't finish because? Because I got a job as a disc jockey and a morning uh, as a morning radio disc jockey in Seattle. And how long had you been at college? I've been there like two and a half years. Okay. I went to UNLV for a year too. Okay. So you're none of this is planned. None of this is I got to break my way out of the boonies. I got to be somebody. No. Not at okay. all. Okay. So you're calling into the station. Continue. I call into the station. I actually gave them an idea that they used and became a really big deal for them. There was we had a governor named Ev Meekum who was like the first of the great Republican racists that made the news he uh he was a uh he got elected kind of by accident because there were three people on the ballot and the ballot was split he got elected he one of his first orders of business was to do away with martin luther king day as a oh holiday. yeah i remember that remember that yeah they were boycotted by and so anyway you remember that song brand new lover by dead or alive of course i wrote this brand new governor what we need is a brand new governor they recorded it and became a big deal and in fact you too asked they heard it when they came to town to record rattle and hum and they asked the radio station for cop a copy of it and they played it in the sun devil stadium before their concert, which was like, uh, you know, it's crazy. I was, this is, you know, I was just a kid and, uh, you know, that have this happen. You actually even hear it in the background as Bono is sitting by the pool um, in the rattle and hum documentary. And, um, and so they, they were like, wow, that was great. And they trusted me and I started doing a lot of stuff with them. And when, when did you start getting paid by them? I never got paid by them, uh, but one of the guys, Kent Voss, got a job doing mornings in Seattle and took me with him as his producer slash sidekick. And making how much? 20000 And you're married at this point? Yes. But no kids at this point? No kids yet, no. But it's not a lot of money. And in fact, the general manager told me I'd be making $30,000 a year. And when I got up there, I looked at my paycheck, the first one I got, and I thought, well, this doesn't add up right. And, I, and it seems to add up to exactly $20,000 a year. And I, I went into his office and I said, hey, uh, you know, um, you told me it was 30000 He said, no, I didn't. I said, I, I even have my notes, right? These are the notes I made when you call. You know, he's like, nope, sorry. I was like, fuck, <laughs> what am I going to do? So then Kent had to live with us because we couldn't afford the house that we'd rented on $20,000 a year. So Kent said, okay, I'll stay with you guys and we'll split the rent. And that's just how that worked out. Okay. So how do you get from there to K-Rock? 
I got from there. Uh, we were fired there. Moved back in with my parents in Phoenix. Finally got a job in Tampa at Q105, another huge radio station. Um, I was the producer and on-air character guy. Then I got a job. I got fired from that job. Got a job in Palm Springs. I worked there for uh, 18 months. I did not get fired. I got a job in Tucson with one of the guys I worked with back at KZZP. We worked there for 10 months and got fired. And then I got a job at K-Rock through Kevin Weatherly, who was the music director and van driver in, in Phoenix and who I met at a wedding in Cleveland and hung out with for a few days. And at the end of it, he was like, you're really funny. I think you'd be great on Kevin and Bean show. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. 
You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, you get fired multiple times. Everybody in radio knows that's de rigueur. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Kimmel gets fired. Does the sky fall or do you say, no problem, I'll get another gig? The sky falls and falls hard. And, uh, and I turn into, you remember R&R? You know, the, of course, radio and records. Okay. Right. So that was really the only way to get a job unless you knew somebody. And I didn't know anybody at all. So every Thursday, R&R would be delivered to my house. And the nightmare was when it was delayed by a day in the mail. And I would be waiting out by the mailbox at my parents' house after we'd been fired for that R&R to come so I could go through the want ads and get those cassettes in the mail immediately because I know I know that every radio station has a box of cassettes on the floor of the program director's office that never get listened to. And I, we always thought, oh, if we can get it there first, maybe they will listen to it first. They've placed this ad and hopefully somebody will hear it and hire us. And that was just, that's not how it went. We wound up getting a job in, at, uh, actually, the guy Mike Elliott, who we worked with in Phoenix, got a job as the morning man at Q105 in Tampa. And he had them, he sent for us, basically. So we, he got us the jobs there. So it all comes down to who you know. Well, yeah, but for me, it was the same three people over and over again. <laughs> hey, it's still the people you knew. So all of a sudden, instead of being behind the mic, you're in front of the camera. That's a big switch. What was going through your head? By the way, I disagree with the it comes down to who you know, because you also have to be able to do your job. No, These wait, guys wait, wait, knew a lot wait, of people. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah. That goes without saying. Okay. All right. Especially just, when it comes to entertainment. People are lining up to work for free. Right. Okay. But... If you're trying to get a job through an ad, odds are you will never get it. Never mind yes. there are ads where they're never really even going to hire anybody. So it's yeah. ultimately something you know through a personal relationship. Been my experience. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, when you get to a certain yeah. level, like you say at K-Rock, you get phone calls, you get emails out of the blue. You're but right. That's, that's many steps down the road. Yes, it was. A lot of steps. A lot okay, of moving so, pants down the road. Okay. So now that you're in front of the camera, does a light bulb go off in your head and say, wait a second, I see a whole new opportunity that maybe I'm not really a radio guy, I'm a TV guy? Yeah, but not. it wasn't a light bulb so much as it was a, um, uh, it was on a dimmer switch if it was a light bulb, because I, I just kind of really just saw these as opportunities to make a little extra money. When I started on Wimbenstein's Money, and for the first two seasons, I made $550 a show. We won an <laughs> Emmy. We won an Emmy and I made $550. I think the what did you, most, what'd your, what'd your agent say? Um, he said, you're lucky to have a job. I think the most I ever made was like $1,100 a show. And keep in mind, like if you like if the ratings we had on that show would make it like one of the now if we had those ratings, it would be one of the top 10 shows on television. You know, right, it's, right, right. You know, you look back and you go, oh, wow, these networks were really making out because if they can still make money now with the ratings they currently have, who the hell knows how much money they were making back then? A lot. OK, so who represents you now? James Baby Doll Dixon. And tell my audience about him. Uh, <laughs> well, he is. um he was described as Bill 
Carter as a character right out of a Damon Damon Runyon novel. He is he curses a lot. He smokes a lot. He is tan beyond belief at all times. He is um, a character, the the character of characters. He is a brazen man. He asks for things that no decent person would ever ask for. When he comes out to visit, he doesn't stay in a hotel. He stays in my house. We have a <laughs> guest house next to my house. He won't stay in it because he wants to be in the house with us. He smokes in my house, even though I've asked him not to a million times. He litters. He is. He's the last living human who doesn't know littering is not a good thing to do. He's just a, a character. Okay, so how did he become your agent? How'd you meet him? I met him. He was an agent at William Morris. I had a different agent at William Morris, but he was my, uh, Daniel Kelson, who's the producer of The Man Show, he was his agent. And so we got to know him and we just got such a kick out of him. We came, became very close. And um, he's one of my best friends. He really is. And he is a nut. So what's his skill that has you keep working with him? His skill is he is a great negotiator. And even though he asks for the moon at all times and then wants them to throw Mars in with it, he, he everyone loves him. Which is flipping the story around. You give good hang. So that must have helped your career because the nature, especially when you do filmed entertainment or, you know, these shows, there's a lot of hanging around. Yeah. Yeah. The hanging around is the best part. Okay. So people just like Fred Silverman, they said, this is a good guy to have around. Yeah. Well, Fred didn't know me at all. In fact, I I know. I'm saying that is the start. Yeah. Yeah. And once you start having a job. With all these, you know, okay, what do we know? You're on Win Ben Stein's money. Then ultimately you do the man show. There's crank yankers and all this other stuff. This doesn't happen for most people. Right. Okay. And you're telling me that you're not really a hustler, that you're not out coming up with gigs unless you want to say that I have an inaccurate impression. I am a hustler in the way that I will sit at my computer or for a time, my typewriter and work on projects and come up with a million ideas. And then um, some of them, I mean, I have, you see this cabinet behind me? Oh, well, you can't, this is a radio. They can't see it on the podcast, but I can. I have all my different projects. There are projects from when I was in, high school that I have saved up. And it's funny because you go back to that stuff sometimes like, you know, somebody wants something. You're like, Oh, you know what? I wrote something that might work for this when I was 22 years old. And then you dig through and you find it and you you freshen it up. And uh, suddenly it's new again. Suddenly, finally somebody is going to hear it or see it. And I, I just work a lot. I just always been interested in, um, in in coming up with a show or or a cartoon or something. I, you know, I just, I've always, okay. So you're the type of guy we're hanging out and you say, Hey, you get, you give somebody your script or what's your address. You know, I want to send you something. No, I wouldn't do that. Um, but I might tell you an idea. I mean, I remember how I got crank anchor sold to comedy central was I was at dinner with the president of the network at the time. And I told him I had this, I was like, you know, it would be a great idea if we took crank calls. And uh, at the time I wanted it to be a claymation show and later we turned it into puppets. But um, if we, and we made them into a show and he's like, that's a great idea. I want to do that. 
I never really pitched it. I just kind of floated it out there. Okay. How did the man show come to happen? The man show was, uh, first of all, Adam Carolla and I were characters on Kevin and Bean show at K rock. And we were very, became very good friends. And, uh, he did a character called Mr. Bertram, which was a shop teacher who would use the state. He would call in to give messages to his students who were on the way into school. That was the conceit. And he became wildly popular. So popular. In fact, they hired him to do Loveline on uh, K-Rock, which is a syndicated show. And then uh, Loveline on MTV. And at the same time, I'd been doing Win Ben Stein's Money. And I was the sports guy at, at K-Rock. And Adam and I would go to lunch every day and we talk for three hours. And we, it just eventually occurred to me that we could probably put that time better, to better use by working on a show together. So we started talking about doing a radio show together, which is our initial idea. We wanted to do afternoons at, um, at the uh, local FM talk station, but they weren't interested in us doing that. Weirdly, uh, Comedy Central was, in fact, we sold the man show to ABC through that same guy, Michael Davies, who hired me for Win Ben Stein's money. I told him the idea. I said, what about if, what if we did a show for guys? Um, Oprah was super popular at the time. The show is only for men and we tell women they're not allowed to watch it. <laughs> and he's like, I like that idea. And he pitched it to ABC and they bought a pilot. We went and pitched it and ABC made a pilot, which once they saw it, they were like, Oh no, we're never, we will never put anything like this on our airwaves. But a lot of other networks like FX and Comedy Central made offers once the, the tape started to circulate around. Uh, to what degree would you be able to do that show today? I think you would be able to do it, but you wouldn't be able to get sponsors for it. I think it would be very <laughs> popular, but with, there would be no commercials. <laughs> and to what degree are you talking with Adam Carolla at this point? Oh, we see, you know, we're like brothers. We, you know, we don't talk a lot on the phone, but we love each other. And, um, you know, I, we check in, uh, yeah, we text okay, regularly. But the reason I ask this is mm -hmm. his politics are pretty to the right. Yeah. Yours are to the left. Well, yes. Um, uh, mine are definitely to the left and they always have been my whole life. Um, but his politics, I think, are better described as all over the place. <laughs> but the um, only exposure he gets is from the right. So you'll see him on Fox News screaming about nonsense. And um, that's because they're the ones that put him on. If other people put him on, you might hear some of his other opinions, which are pretty liberal are, you know, he's gotten socially, uh, he's the guy's is pretty liberal, but yeah, he's definitely moved in that direction much more now than he was in the past. And it hasn't affected your relationship. I don't love it. I don't love it, but I love him. Okay. So he was on KLSX. I was on that station and then the station flip format and he went to a podcast. He was very early on that. Mm -hmm. But needless yep. to say, there's so many other people in that sphere at this point in time. And therefore, he has been somewhat marginalized, as has everybody in this internet era where there's so much input. Do you think there's a chance to bring him back to a wider audience? And did you ever think about working or with him or having him come on your show? Well, he's, you know, he's been on my show. I didn't mean as a guest. I didn't state oh. that well. Oh, um, 
No, I mean, I don't really bring anybody on my show. I mean, it's just me and Guillermo standing in the corner, really. And occasionally my cousin Sal does something. And uh, Adam's really carved out a nice situation for himself because he doesn't have a boss and he doesn't have to worry about uh, the things that a lot of people have to worry about. And he seems to attract a, a number of sponsors who are uh, comfortable with the content and he's got his own world that he's created. I mean, he really has his own world. He's got all his race cars in this warehouse and he does his podcast from there and he seems pretty happy with it. Okay. Let's jump forward. Uh, For those who are not students, what year do you start hosting the late night program? I started 2003. Okay. This is important because the landscape is completely different then. Okay. You know, we have, letterman we have leno letterman is beating leno until all of a sudden he hosts the oscars and that hurts his ratings because people see him I don't well, know that's a little that timeline's a little off but uh he was hosting late night when he did did the oscars uh letterman he letter leno letterman wait, 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 he, just so i just get the yeah uh dave was yeah. on it twelve thirty. yes and then he went to one he went to eleven thirty uh 92 was it um it was yeah right around there yeah and then he did the oscars like 93 4 5 um gosh i don't know exactly what okay so continue continue your narrative you're making when i well i'll tell you when i when i went on the air i was on at midnight actually 1205 and dave and jay were on at 11 30 right and then i think Craig Kilborn was on at 12.30, and Conan was on at 12.30. I guess what I was saying, and I wasn't making the point clearly, that you have these two institutions. Yeah. Okay? Letterman and Leno. And to a degree, everybody's fighting for scraps. Then Dave says he's going to call it a day. This is already in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Jay went to 10 then came back to 11.30, and they announced at the Olympi- that for the Olympics, they're going to blow him out, and they're going to bring Jimmy in. So all right. of a sudden, it's a whole new landscape. And you've been there chugging along, but you weren't Letterman or Leno, but building your audience. What, did, what went through your mind when all of a sudden you say, wait a second, they're rejiggering the whole landscape here? Well, they definitely, my show definitely played some role in them replacing Jay with Jimmy and Jimmy show much more. So obviously he was doing very well at 1230, but I was gaining on Jay and they got nervous. Now, unlike Howard, you have interacted with Jay. You famously got into it with him on screen. Do you ever see Jay anymore? Ever talk to him? Every once in a while, you know, I've kind of, I used to, it's funny, I, 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 this grudge I had against Jay Leno really was not about me. It was about Dave and uh, the fact that I thought Dave deserved the Tonight Show. And, and, you know, if you read any account of how Jay got it, it's just a little bit sneaky. And so I always just had that in my in my head. And now, uh, you know, especially since Dave has like done some stuff with Jay and I was like, why am I still fighting this war? <laughs> so Jay has been very nice to me. He's uh, he's he he is um, he called me when my son had his heart surgery and 
He's done some n- nice stuff for charity for somebody that uh, is important to me. And uh, we've, we we don't have that. We're not friends, but we don't have that um, negativity between us anymore. Okay, let's go back to that point where you're making headway on his ratings. Are you fully aware of that? And are yes. you driving? And, and are you saying, man, we are on a roll. How do we keep this roll going? Yeah, we're just saying, hey, first of all, you guys have to put us on at 1130. You know, we want to be on at 1130 so we can really compete with these other shows. And they it took them a very long time to come to that decision, but they did. To what degree was the show different from when you went on at 12.05? I'm not talking about Letterman changing the show, which I thought was a mistake for the earlier. I like when he wore the boxing shoes and, you know, didn't wear the suits. But I'm talking about how much did you learn along the way such that when you hit 11.30, you were really ready? Um, I don't know that I was ready, but I thought I was ready. I, you know, you, you do get better at this as it goes on. And, um, you know, that's why it is so unfair to judge someone based on their first show or first week of shows it, because it's, it, it bears no resemblance to what they do years later. But I felt I was ready and I really wanted to. And I could see that, you know, Dave and Jay were getting older and they weren't going to be on forever. And I wanted to establish a foothold at that spot before th- the next shows came in. You know, I, that's that was what we wanted. And um it took a lot of convincing to get them there. Okay. So Jimmy comes on. What do we know? Johnny did a show that was really a talk show. Dave really did a show that was a comedy show, completely changed the landscape of late night television. Jimmy comes on. He is great at skits, not a great interviewer. What do you think of Fallon as competition at the time? And he comes out to great ratings. No, listen, it was like it f- for a time, it felt like you were in the corner of the ring being pummeled. It was just like the, the ratings that he was getting for a long period of time were astronomical. They were like, what? The, what is going on? Uh, and it, they were putting on home run viral bit after home run viral bit. And it was really like. You almost had to just like rope a dope it and just try to wait it out <laughs> because there was no other choice. It really became a, a phenomenon beyond late night television. What did you think about Colbert getting the gig? I think that was absolutely the right choice. I, I was always a big fan of his always. I, I thought it wouldn't work. And of course, it didn't work at first. And then he changed some of the people working with him. And then all of a sudden, Trump gets elected. And Colbert starts talking politics. And Fallon is a man out of time. It definitely, it was definitely, well, I don't think any of us would describe that as a, um, a positive turn of events. <laughs> you know, I think if you gave Stephen the choice uh, between no Trump and his show finding its its mark i think he would go for no trump but um yeah it definitely changed what tv late night television was uh for and what it was about it it definitely made uh the trivial seem trivial whereas before that it was all trivial okay now 
you evolved to the point where you're making news for your political stance. Needless to say, it is to the left. And anybody in the public eye knows that if you do that, there are people who will relentlessly, usually the same people, attack you, if for no other reason, telling you, you're stay out of this lane. So what were the decisions to go in that area, and to what degree were there stones and you know slings and arrows thrown at you? There was no decision made. It, it was so plainly obvious that uh, we couldn't ignore what was going on and that what the things that I said had to be said. And I knew that I knew what I know my audience. I mean, you know, I came from the man show. My audience was the most Republican audience of any show on late night. And but sometimes circumstances dictate uh, what you are going to do. And in this case, they very much did. And I knew that it was going to split my audience in less than half. But what else? What am I going to do? Ignore what this maniac is doing to our country? I mean, it's, it's it was not even an option. And there was a time where ABC was uncomfortable with it. And they gently a couple of times tried to get me stop. And, um, you know, I remember a conversation I had with um, with someone who was running the network at the time. I was like, hey, listen, um, you know. I get it. I understand where you're coming from. I know you want to get the biggest number possible, but this is what I'm going to do. So let's just be honest. And if, if this is not acceptable to you, I understand that, but I'm going to go, I'm going to keep doing this. So, um, I just want to be honest with you and be upfront that I'm not going to pull punches. I'm not going to reel it in. This is how it's going to be. I get it if you don't want me on your air anymore, but this is what I'm going to do on your air every night. To what degree were you active politically prior to Trump's election? Um, most of my activity was related to charity. I wasn't, I was, I've always been interested in politics. I have always been a Democrat. Uh, my parents are very liberal. Uh, of course, that's where I got it, I'm sure. And I've always been. But I'd never donated to a candidate or anything like that. Um, you know, I always felt strongly about who I was voting for, but I, I never had actually done anything other than vote. So you're doing the show. You have writers. What do the writers provide and what do you provide? Well, um, every day I get like 30 pages of material emailed to me. I go through all of it and I pick what I want to use. And then um, as the day goes on, I have a, a, a writer named Josh who sits next to me and he will put together a monologue and I will follow closely behind him editing the monologue a as we go. So I'm like a paragraph behind him at all times. And I do a great deal of writing. There are some times where I use a lot of the writer's material. And there's sometimes where I go, okay, I just, this is something I need to just write on my own when it comes to personal experiences or when it comes to serious subjects, uh, generally I will do that sort of thing myself. Okay. You reach seven figures of people every night and compared to other outlets, that's a very significant number, but it is 
less of the audience than it was in the pre-internet era as we talked. To what degree does this frustrate you? I say it's not you're not the only one. Everybody in the landscape, the only person who had universal mind share was Trump himself. Okay? But whereas, you know, when I went to high school, everybody went in on Tuesday and talked about what was on laughing. We don't all, we're not even all on the same page. So someone who is making content on a regular basis, servicing a base audience is your goal. Well, how do I grow my audience or how do I do something so special that it goes above the fray and it gets noticed? I always just, I'm a niche performer inherently. I've always been that. I was, I was the third banana on the radio show here in LA. Some might even consider me the fourth banana after Mr. Bertram. I was, I did a, a very um, niche game show on Comedy Central. I did a show that was, you know, just for men on a cable channel. And I was on probably the most mainstream thing I've, I've ever done is making football picks on Fox on Sunday morning. So I've never felt like I should be reaching a huge audience. I, I've always been happy with the audience that I, that I get. Um, yeah. And, but and really most of my effort goes into how can we make this as funny as possible it is never about like, how do we, you know what? I mean, of course I'll look at, you know, if the ABC promo department has ideas, I'll be like, Oh yeah, maybe we could do this, but it's never about, it's never, if you, I think if you focus on that, you fail. I, I just, you know, I think it, like, if you think about, I know you talk a lot about, musicians and and making a record i think if you sit down and try to make a hit record you're already on the wrong track i you know i mean i know it works out sometimes but i you know that's that's not how you should do it that's a longer discussion and i agree with you conceptually but moving on about you yeah you're a niche performer who ends up hosting the oscars doing a better job than anyone has done at least in decades it oh, is thanks. acknowledged. You do it again. So yes, all of a sudden you do float above the fray. Yeah, and but that doesn't mean I'm not still a niche pe- performer at heart. And uh, I, you know, I'm not your classic television host by any stretch of the imagination. I've got a New York accent. I'm not particularly handsome. I'm not necessarily what. I'm not the guy that would walk in an audition for a job and nail it. I'm somebody that kind of grows on you, I think, and who tries to be, for me, I just try to, I feel like, and I always felt like this when I was on the radio, it's not about hitting a home run today. It's about hitting a double every day for years in a row. And that's, and if I can do that, I'm happy. Okay. That may be your perspective, but you are literally the face of ABC. You do the upfronts, Never mind their big events. I can't talk about an equivalent face of the other major networks. Okay. But think about this though, Bob. Yes, maybe I am, I guess, one of the more prominent personalities and maybe I'm the face of ABC, but ABC isn't, isn't what ABC was when we were young. You know, I mean, we think, still think of it. As, Everything as you're something. saying, but let me dive to my ultimate point here. Okay. Yes. When you talk about important subjects on your show, there's inherently influence there. I can't tell you how many people who turn in your show 
who already agree with you or disagree with you, turn you out, whatever, but it's influence. We have seen this with Fox News. Mm -hmm. There is power there. And I'm sure if you sit in your office and say, I want to write, there's occasionally something so heinous, they just have to talk about it. Yeah. But most of the time you're saying, I feel this and this needs to be amplified. And there's influence in there, and you have a much larger audience than everybody. It's like in the New York Times yesterday, they talked about these anti-protester laws being passed in different states, such that if you hit a protester in the street with your car, you can't be held liable, okay? I mean, that's just insane. I don't think it was in the New York Times. I think the more people know about that, the better it is. You have a much bigger platform than almost anybody. Yes, everybody's platform is smaller than it used to be. But saying that, you were very high in the network that still exists, in the, in the hierarchy. And to, so to what degree do you say, I have a certain power and I have a certain responsibility. Not only that, I think I can influence people. Um. I oh, I agree with all of that. I mean, I do. Yes, I do have a certain amount of influence, power, whatever, how, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know this based on my own experiences. I know this based on listening to Bruce Springsteen when I was a kid and that helping to shape my worldview, uh, how I, I, I think about politics, how I think about, you know, you're a kid who graduates high school in 1985 you don't know a lot about vietnam and then you hear you hear you know bruce springsteen sing born in the usa and you think it's a, a rah-rah america song and then you realize like oh okay well that isn't what it is and oh wow that, i didn't know that stuff and and uh it, you know you're influenced by it it influenced in not just in, in, in as when it comes to important things and unimportant things. And so um, I just try to say what I believe. I remember this reporter wrote something, this guy, he's still a popular guy and he's, he was a, a nice guy, but he wrote something about a friend of mine, Carson Daly. And he wrote something about him being a douche. And I was upset because we'd had a dinner and, and Carson was there and I called him and I said, Hey, do you think Carson is a douche? And he said, no, I don't think that. I said, well, why'd you write that? He goes, I, I don't know. I guess, I don't know. It worked because everybody at that time was saying, you know, his image was like that. He was some kind of a douche. And I remember just, I just said, you know, maybe when you're writing, I don't know if you want to take any advice from me, only say things you mean. And, you know, it's hard to stick to that, but I try to. Okay, but let to what degree do you believe that you have influence? I know I have influence. I just don't have a real measure of it. And I think sometimes I have more influence than others. I think and if there is anything important that we're doing on late night television, it's reminding people that what was going on was crazy because I think it would be maybe easy to forget that, especially if you're not somebody who is really connected to the news. I mean, I know so many people, you think it's the biggest story in the world and they don't know anything about it. You know, smart people, people who, you know, or have big careers and whatever, but they just don't pay attention. Well, I think what we offer is, um, it may be information. It, it, it's, um, like when you, when you give a dog a pill, you know, you put some, you put some peanut butter on it. 
Okay, talking about something really important, your weight. When yes. you went on late night TV, you became very thin, thinner than you were before. Everybody who's been on TV knows two things. Yes, the camera does add weight, and no one likes how they look on television. Yeah. So to what degree were you conscious of your weight, and to what degree are you conscious now in watching what you eat and exercising, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I'm conscious of what I eat and exercising. I just don't actually <laughs> do i don't do the things that i need to do i um i am an extreme person i like when i lost weight and i've been pretty heavy for like 10 years on on the show when i decided to lose weight it was almost like a game it was almost like well let's see if i can do this and i just starved myself for like six weeks and that's how i got my weight down and it wasn't any it wasn't healthy that's for sure but it is, I have to say, probably the great, my biggest daily struggle is, is that because I love to eat and, um, you know, I'm come home sometimes and make dinner for the family. And then I just sit there and watch them eat it. <laughs> and it's terrible. If there's one thing I could buy, it would be the ability to eat anything I want. That would be the, you know, that would be better than any house or car or anything. And to what degree do you exercise? Um, to the degree of zero, I exercise. I was exercising for a while. I had a guy that would come to my house that I really got along with. Um, and then COVID happened and he couldn't come to the house. And now he doesn't come to the house anymore. And left to my own devices, I will always find something else to do. Okay. Filling a couple of holes. Are you still a sports guy? I have, I, yes, I do. I, I enjoy sports. I mostly pay attention around the playoff time, but I have, I will say that the last four or five years have made sports seem less important to me. And what about football and CTE? Um, I think that it is, um, I, I feel guilty sometimes watching sports. Uh, football is not my favorite of the sports. Baseball is, and it's less of an issue, obviously, there. But I have a hard time watching um, boxing um, because I know what happens to those guys uh, in the long run. And I feel like it's like it's not so much different from watching cockfighting. Um, but I think I am um, somewhat willfully ignorant when it comes to watching football. And guess... Now, the show's Letterman changed this. It used to be on Johnny, the guest just came. With Letterman, you had to come with a story. It became a comedy bit. How do you view this and what makes a good or bad guest? Well, if you have a great story, I am that's a good day for me because I, I, it's a lot less work. And I can just sit there and enjoy and keep the story moving. Um, some guests are harder than others. We definitely do things the way Letterman did where we have a pre-interview and if the guest has nothing to talk about, they sit on the phone with the producer for a long time and then they come to me and say, hey, uh, there's this that this person could talk about or this and this. And I say, I'm not interested in that or I am interested in this. And then sometimes the best interviews, it all gets cast aside and we get to none of that material. It's more of a safety net than anything. But if somebody has a great story, you want to make sure you get to it. And if somebody has a great joke, the 
the good thing about knowing what it is beforehand is you don't want to step on their punchline. You don't want to step on the end of it. And, you know, as a comedian, you're always like kind of thinking like, oh, where's the funny line at the end of this? And you don't want to take that from them. You want to make sure that 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 there's room for them to be funny. And your two favorite guests? Charles Barkley is uh, somebody that I'm always very, very happy to have on the show. I love, I love him. Um, it's really hard to narrow it down to two, uh, but I will say it was always a thrill to have Don Rickles on the show. That was fun. Okay. So looking forward, how much longer are you going to do this? Um, probably not that much longer. And when you stop doing this, what do you plan to do? I will. You know, one thing I I know is that whatever I think is going to happen, that never seems to be the way it goes and that things come out of the blue. And sometimes I get excited about things and I can't control myself and I go, oh, yeah, I should definitely do this. And sometimes <laughs> before you know it, you're off to the races and committed to something you now realize that you have to be committed to. But I will definitely produce television shows. I will um, probably send jokes to other late night hosts when I think of them, <laughs> if I if I feel I don't have a uh, an outlet. Um, and I actually bought a fishing lodge in Idaho that I am enjoying uh, remodeling and and fixing up, and um, I, I'm planning to spend a good amount of time there. Would you ever retire? Um, not. In t- I don't know that I ever fully retire. Maybe I will. I'll always do something. I like to draw. That's really what I love to do. Really? Yes. And um, I will always keep myself busy. I always have a project that I'm I'm working on. Let's go back to the hunting uh, fishing lodge. That, I assume, is in the panhandle of Idaho, which is where Mark Furman and a lot of white nationalists move to. It's actually not. It's, it's, on, um, it's, on the, it's an hour from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Really? Yeah. It's like on, right on the border. It, like yeah, in that area. Or, yeah. 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 Okay, that, that sort of catches me off guard because everybody else I know has a house like in Sand Point, et cetera. How'd you end up getting a place there? I went fishing there one summer and I said, I caught a lot of fish. I should have a place here. And so I knew the place was for sale and I started keeping an eye on it. And I I have this buddy named Oliver White who's got a couple of fishing lodges in in the Bahamas and he um and the hurricane actually demolished his fishing lodge and I said would you want to work on this with me and would you want to be the guy that runs this lodge and he said yes and um you know cuz obviously it's not something you can do alone and you need somebody who really knows what they're doing and we've been working on this for the last year and a half so this will be a commercial enterprise people it will is, book yeah. this okay yes. and it's up and running now yeah, it's been open since 1990. Okay, so what's the name of it since we're talking about It's called about the South Fork Lodge. Okay, and you grew up in Las Vegas. When did you become such a big fisherman? Uh, I used to fish in Las Vegas. In fact, Cleto, who I mentioned earlier, Across his dad, the street, yeah. who is also in my band, um, would take us to Lake Mead, and we go fishing. We almost never caught anything, but we loved it more than anything. And when I'm out on the river, Fishing is when I really am able to stop and enjoy life. Okay. 
What do you do with all your money? Um, I spend it on the fishing lodge. <laughs> um, I do a lot of stuff uh, with with my money. Um, uh, I donated all to charity. <laughs> I, you know, I like to do good things with the money. Um, I uh, bought my parents a house. I bought my in laws a house. Um, I bought the fishing lodge, and um, I don't love the stock market. I don't love any of that stuff to me it's like it's gambling there's a bunch of people making money without actually doing anything or making anything um so i i like i'm more interested in real estate than okay but you're handsomely paid so i must assume there is uh cash stock or something somewhere where you know your liquid assets where are those um my liquid assets uh, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really. That was going to be my next question. You don't know. Someone's <laughs> managing that. You don't think about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think about it. I'm. I. 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 I know I have enough money, and um. Uh, and I know I'm not being robbed. That's the extent of it. Oh, believe me, a lot of people have been robbed. Yeah. Okay. So both you and me, even though I'm older than you, we grew up in a completely different America. Yeah. What's going to happen in America? Well, um, I like to think we're going to, we're going to reunite, but, um, it doesn't feel like it right now. That's for sure. It doesn't even feel like, I mean, even something like COVID, this should have united us. This should have been the thing. This should have been our world war where everybody pitched in and helped each other. And instead it became another right versus left situation, which is, just absolutely crazy. And I don't think anyone expected it. And I don't know that it's going on in other countries other than the countries that are influenced by the way we do things and who see like, oh, okay, if I take that anti-mask position, I'm going to attract a certain amount of people who uh, don't trust the government and blah, blah, all that bullshit. Um, I don't feel that optimistic. I really don't. Um, I hope I'm, I very much hope I'm off and that there will be a time where we um, are all Americans again. I mean, you know, I have a flag on my house and, um, uh, and people sometimes get the wrong idea, which bothers me. It's like, like, Hey, this is not their symbol. This is our symbol. This is, you're supposed to love this country and be patriotic and uh, do all those things that, we learned we were also supposed to be critical of our country and we're also supposed to be welcoming to people from other countries and we're supposed to help people who are poor and this idea of america first is a disgusting notion it's it's disgusting it's it's not that's not america america in, inherently is, is it was a, a refuge for people from all over the world to come and work together and build something and obviously you know that there have been groups that have been discriminated against in horrible ways um but ultimately we i think we all when you and i were kids used to feel like we're american you know we're all rooting for the same team and um now we seem to have two teams living under the same roof let's just drill down a little bit uh we've now reached the point where everybody who wants a covid vaccine has one how do we convince the, how can you help convince or other people help convince the people who won't get a vaccine to get vaccinated? 
I can't, Bob. I'm, I do not have that cachet. However, there are people like Donald Trump, for instance, who did get the vaccine, who credits himself greatly for developing the vaccine and speeding the production of the vaccine and why he hasn't. Tur- well, I know why he hasn't turned the corner on that and just outright said, you need to get the vaccine. Why he didn't put out a picture of himself with a needle in his arm shows his 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 selfishness, his uh, that he that that he cares more about his about keeping everyone under his his horrible little umbrella than he does about their actual lives. These people are their lives are in danger because the people who they follow don't care about them and they need to do more. Those people who who do have the trust of that community, the the musicians and the athletes and the you know UFC fire, you know, these people need to speak out and they need to tell people, uh, especially the ones who are getting the shots. We know there are lots of Republicans getting the shots. Why? Where are they? Why aren't they telling people, telling their people to do it? Because the more I tell them to do it, the less they're going to do it. Wow. Okay. And you're a student of the game. What's going to happen with the landscape? Let me paint it for a second. Used to be network television and the movies. Now we have internet platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, etc. That's one thing. We have network television, and the networks were smart because they ended up buying some of the cable channels. It's just not ABC anymore, just like it's not just not NBC or CBS. But we know the ratings for the uh, networks have gone down. There are a lot of channels on uh, that are built into the cable system that are supported by us paying for cable that don't exist otherwise. We have the movie studios that are only making a certain kind of movie. We have multiple streaming platforms. How do you see this all playing out? I love it. I think it's great. I think the idea that some 16-year-old kid can have his or her own TikTok video popular channel and get millions of people watching and actually make a living uh, is a great thing. I wish I had that when I was a kid. I think. Oh, believe me. I wish I did too. Yeah. And it was so hard. I mean, I just think about my career. It was so hard to get on the radio. It was just so hard to get in, in a, in a studio in front of a microphone. And I was under the thumb of these companies I worked for because when I got fired, there wasn't enough. I couldn't go across the street. You know, the radio stations consolidated and it made it impossible. You had to move to another city if you wanted to stay in that music format. And the idea now that anybody can can have a podcast and that everybody's got a shot at it becoming popular. And that I, I mean, I just think it like it, it opens the doors to the best talent. It gives you practice, which is something you really, you know, you can't get from calling in every once in a while to a radio station. It gives you those reps that you need to, um, you know, to host something later in your career. And I I think it's great. I I think, you know, just what you said about the movies, they're only making these movies, these huge superhero movies, this kind of stuff. The, The punishment for that is going to be. There are going to be a million little mini movie studios making a million little 
we call them TV shows because they're not in theaters, but who cares about theaters anymore? And I think that uh, the power structure is completely upside down. And I don't think that's bad for anyone other than the people who are at the top of it. And the future of talk shows? The future of talk shows will be shows that have much smaller audiences, but have, have particular subjects. And you will be able to find a talk show that you love because it really pushes every you'll be able to find a talk show uh, about um you know sculpting in clay <laughs> you know and, and those people on those shows aren't necessarily going to make 15 million dollars a year but they might make a hundred thousand dollars a year and that's you know i mean if you can do what you love and make a living from it that's as good as it gets and who do you listen to for information I mostly read. Um, I listen to Howard all the time, uh, not necessarily for information, but just for entertainment. And um, that takes up most of my, and I always read your newsletter as well. I, I, I always read it. Um, I don't Thank always you so agree, much. but I always read it. And I, I think it's, I, I, it is amazing how much, how much material you put out and how many, um, thoughts you have on Israeli television shows. <laughs> They're the best. All the television shows. I mean, I happen to be Jewish, but I didn't say, oh, I got to sit at home, watch Israeli television. You know, what's going to happen, Bob, is you're eventually, it hasn't happened yet, but the relentlessness of the newsletter is eventually going to convince me to watch an Israeli television show. And when that does, I will send you an, it happens, I will send you an email letting you know you've won. Okay, I got a couple, you know, because just to stay there for people you know they have a new season of shtissel so a lot of people are watching this that. is not I, a real show you've made this up there's no <laughs> such thing as shtissel. well the reason i mention it this is about super orthodox people <laughs> in israel so you don't want to recommend it to non-jews <laughs> right but all of a sudden the non-jews have caught on i mean it's one thing where you say you gotta watch this show Okay, yeah. this is not that show. And then you say, well, maybe you want to watch Shugim, which is about the modern Orthodox. They're Orthodox, but they have regular jobs. Okay, hold on, right now, Shtisel and Shugim. No, oh, but I just the point spit is, all over my camera. No, no. no, but Prisoners of War was considered to be the best uh, foreign TV show of the last decade. Yeah, and that is, first of all, it's very heavy and really great. But okay, let's just talk about streaming TV for a minute. Okay. There are a couple of unbelievable shows that everybody should see. If you watch cop shows, the best cop show made period is Spiral. Have you seen Spiral? I've not seen it, no. French show, unbelievable. Not Did you deep. say French show? <laughs> yes. Not deep on meaning, okay, right. but incredible. Have you, yeah. watched, have you watched Borgen? I've not watched it. I've seen I, I've seen you write about it. But for me, even pleasure is part of my job. So when I watch shows, I need to watch things that uh, that are going to that I can talk. You know, you know, how Howard watch, watches nothing but shitty television shows. Right. That's because he know he's accumulating material. It's if he watches a show that's really good, there's not much to say about it. You know, so for me, like. I don't want to watch The Bachelor, but it's part of my job. And then it eats up a lot of like viewing time. And there are a lot of movies I don't want to watch or TV shows, but I have the guest on 
So I have to watch their show. So I don't have the luxury of watching Schmischel or whatever, Schmuggly or whatever you're watching. I, I understand your point. And yeah. I understand the point you're making about Howard. Ironically, some of these shows would help with your material. But the interesting thing, especially with COVID, people have watched so much television that they're finally looking for new television. People yeah. are lazy. So they'll just watch what everybody else watches. Some of this stuff, if you watched Borgen, which is basically a Danish political show, the woman who is the star is so charismatic and there's certain ways she behaves and a right-hand person is so evil and it talks about politics, that would give you material because it would All stimulate right. oh. something back. Have you watched Patriot? Yes, I have. And? It's a very odd show. Yeah. And, you know, very. not that much happens and you watch it, but you can't stop watching it. You want One of my favorite so shows of the decade. It's, it's so weird. Like th that through line with the singing what's happening on the oh, show God. <laughs> is such sounds like such a stupid idea. And yet it is great. You know, it's a cult. People who've seen it. So what else have you seen that you liked? Um, you know, the Patriot is one of those few shows that I I'm able to watch for my own. I was able to watch for my own pleasure, you know, because most of the stuff I watch is, is because I have to watch it. But, um, what do I, you know, I watch, um, better things, uh, Pamela Adlon show. We yeah. Love. Very good. Yeah. She, there's something magical about her. You know, she's yeah. a, she's a pipsqueak. She can be sensitive, but she also can throw it out with an edge. She's, she's a tremendously natural actress too. And, yes. um, and, and I, I find, I love that show. So um, just having watched that show, yeah. did you watch Aziz Ansari show? Master, Master of, none. of None. Yes, yes, yes. That was phenomenal. Yes, really. And good. did you watch Rami on Hulu? Yes, Rami is great. Yes, yes. Because okay, so continue. You were going to mention something beyond Pamela oh, Adlon. I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't know why. I, it's always hard for me. And then uh, once we're done, I'll think of eleven things. No, I didn't mean to that. put you on the spot. So when people say, "What record you're listening to?" Yeah. If you had something in the top of your head. I don't want to push you. The only other show I want to definitely mention, though. Oh, Chad. Have you seen Chad? No. What is Chad? This is a show on TBS, and I watched it because I had to, because I had the star on the show, and it is very, very funny, and I think you would like it. What's it about? It is about a, it's a, uh, an adult woman playing a teenage boy, an Iranian boy, and um, he is a, a hopeless nerd. And oh, as weird a character as you've seen on TV. And it's just very well done. I want to talk about one other show, though. There's a show called The Bureau, another French show about the French CIA. Okay. First season, not as good. They have it one? Gets, <laughs> turns out they do. That's fascinating <laughs> because they're secondary characters. They're always overpowered by the Americans. And the, the other thing is they can operate in countries where we can't, like Iran. Okay, mm. but it comes very tense as it goes along, very much like, you know, what you would expect from a movie. But uh, you know what kills us? I, I only watch shows with my wife. So uh, if, if, you know, our, we have we have few hours together. So when we watch stuff, we watch together. And um, and so it, we have to pick shows that are of mutual interest. Well, I find the same thing. It's like uh, when I watch 
Certainly, you know, Israeli show Our Boys was too violent for my girlfriend, mm-hmm. who I live with, been together for 16 years next month, just to say my girlfriend. But mm-hmm. uh, the other thing is Gomorrah. Do you know the show Gomorrah? Oh, yes. I, you know what? Many of my friends have. Um, my girlfriend won't watch it. So I, you know, I yeah. only got through one episode. If I don't watch with her, my mind wanders. It's funny. So it's the same thing. Everybody talks about Peaky Blinders. Said so my girlfriend didn't like it. I mean, it's not, I could watch it myself, but right. not really happening. And ever read a book? Have I ever read a book? No. Now, do you have any time to read a book? Oh, not much. But um, for work, uh, I just I had to read Hunter Biden's book. Um, I had him on the show. That was the last one I read. Hunter, guilty of any of the shit the Republicans say? The laptop? No. No. <laughs> Ridiculous. How about Boehner's book? You can have Boehner on? No, 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 no. I, he's he's uh, he's he's uh, he's suddenly very compassionate. I, I find that annoying. <laughs> okay, that's good. Who, who have you not had on that you want to have on? Not too many people. I've had almost everybody, but um, Madonna is somebody. I had a I had the hots for Madonna when I was in high school, and she's never been on the show. Do you think you would be able to do your show if she came on or she would take over? <laughs> She'd probably take over. Yeah. It would right. be difficult. Yeah. A- anybody you haven't met that you'd like to meet? Um, I, you know, I Banksy to me is a very interesting character yeah. who I would love to have on the show. I do think, you, um, it, it, do you that, own any Banksy? I do. I have a couple of them. Yeah. What do you think about the self-destroying, uh, artwork? Uh, I love it. I, it's, it, he's, he's brilliant. It's, it's just, uh, you know, I, I can't get enough of that kind of thing. The ir- irreverence, the irreverence, the creativity, uh, this, the even weird prank element to it. And um, also just putting a pin in all that art bullshit. Okay. Since we're there, NFTs. Yeah. What's your take? <laughs> you know, I, I think I kind of know what they are. I've, you know, I think when you hit a certain age, or at least for me, like I now have lost the ability to read directions and figure out how to do things. Like my brain is not a sponge anymore. It's a rock. And um, I, I think I have a basic idea of what they are. They seem to be imaginary baseball cards. As far That's as exactly I can tell. what they are. You understand <laughs> it completely. <laughs> so and that was the best way for me to understand it. A guy bought imaginary baseball. Oh, cards. Did somebody he, say that? Really? No, oh, cause I he just said, no, no, he didn't use the term. You can own the term. It's great. But <laughs> That's what he exactly said. I was a baseball card collector. I just bought an interest, just like people own baseball cards. They're going to have these, you know, fake baseball cards. And I felt the same way about it as you. Just ridiculous. Bob, maybe we should start selling imaginary baseball cards. I think, you know, the window is already closed. I've got a Jim Rice that I think people will be really interested in right now. (laughs) Here it is. Oh, I can see it. Yeah. The Emperor's New Clothes. Jimmy, I won't keep you any longer. You know, it's interesting because you always try to find the hot point. And now I realize the hot point would be just having the conversation. I should have just brought up bullshit like a friend (laughs) instead of all this other stuff. It's like when Howard, he had Mad Dog on. Did you listen to Mad Dog? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Okay. Mad Dog kissed Howard's ass way too hard. Okay. (laughs) And then... They, you know, they cover something usually, but then he asks Mad Dog's take the last half hour. I don't know if you heard that. I did. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He could ask him anything. 
Godfather 1, Godfather 2. He had a take on everything. And you say, God, I would love to sit with this guy because what I love to do most is argue about all this fucking shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's if I can think of one person in my life, it's Adam Carolla who has a take on literally any subject and a funny take usually. And in fact, I was walking with this this uh, journalist, Bill Carter, uh, at the beginning of my show, and I was telling him about Adam. I said, Adam has a take on it. Give him like when we see him next, we're walking around the corner. I said, give him, I think, anything you can think of. And he's like, uh, I think he had like a cocktail in his hand, one of those little red drinking straws. Right. And here comes Adam around the corner and he goes. Adam, what do you think of these little? And I was like, yeah, those straws—they're straws, but they're not straws. They're like he went into a whole thing. I was like, see, there you go. (laughs) I know, as I say, I happen to like Mad Dog. You know, that was one of the weird things where he went to went to satellite and lost a good percentage of his audience as opposed to Howard. But I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known. Jimmy, I really have to thank you for taking all this. That was fun. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate you having me. And uh, it's good to uh, chat with you um, with words instead of um, typing. Yes. Till next time. This is Bob Lefstitz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.